Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second part of the 2020 Sock Takes Pod relaunch special. This week, we're going to be continuing our conversation from whenever that last episode came out. This time focusing on some of the amateur soccer stuff and particularly the changes to the U.S. Open Cup. My name is John Leonard, and as a, as last time, I'm joined by uh, Mr. Uh, Colton Qureshi. Colton, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well, John. How are you? Uh, not particularly bad, although it is below freezing in Dallas. And as a Texan, my body doesn't quite know how to cope with that. <laughs> That's funny. It's about like 50 degrees up here in New York. So yeah, we're getting snow and ice. Oh, I'm drinking whiskey to stay warm. I mean, that's a good way to do it. And uh, as always, the Sock Takes Pod is sponsored by Roughneck Scarves and is a part of the Beautiful Game Network. I got to say that this time because Beautiful Game Network is being sticklers about that. So anyway, how about we just jump into it? Yeah, sounds good to me. Um, before we get into like the, uh, the open cup stuff, cause I think we're going to start there. Yeah. Uh, we were both just talking about this before we got on MLS just released their jerseys for 2020. And we were talking yeah. about, you know, some of them, I, I'm looking through them, right? I appreciate that they're unique this year. I like some of them. The LAFC is nice. The NYCFC is not bad. And then I saw Nashville's purple monstrosity. Yeah, uh, uh, Nashville has continued to do pretty much everything incorrectly, as far as I can tell. Like, they started off with uh, woefully uh, inadequate ticket sales. They've given us some branding that is somehow worse than their NPSL crest from a few seasons ago. And now this. Yeah, I I didn't even know... that purple was a color that they could choose from. I I wasn't aware that that was in their, their palette. Um, but it was a pretty big shock to see that. I think the only one that compares to that in terms of how disappointed I am is the inter Miami kit, which is basically just a, a straight black Jersey with the logo and the three shoulder stripes. And that's it. Yeah. The, uh, three Jersey stripes representing, of course, the early nineties, mid nineties in, adidas like the uh 1994 world cup uh i don't really know what sort of ties the inner miami might have to the 1994 world cup was was england in it because at least they got they got beckham beckham didn't make a senior uh team first appearance until 1996 oh well then forget him yeah not even that (laughs) we can't even like like very go out on a limb say that david beckham wore a jersey like this because he didn't yeah and that's just for me the overall design is just a a bit of a swing and a miss there's individual moments of brilliance i actually really like the timbers jersey looking at it the timbers got a really good one colorado got a really cool one yep oddly enough i kind of really like new england's New England's isn't bad. I'll give you that. That's not terrible. I actually kind of like the Red Bulls. I always was a sucker for like a black and red kit. So yeah. that, that gets me. And Minnesota finally got the wing. How do you feel about uh, Dallas? Whelmed. Whelmed. That's appropriate. It's, That's appropriate. It's going to give me something to complain about, but I'm probably going to actually buy one. I was going to ask you, are you going to drop a hundred something on it? Uh, no, I'm going to use my season ticket discount. Oh, well, there you go. I think even with NY, I don't even know if NYCSE gives us a season ticket discount for jerseys. 
I think they must, but it's not significant. Uh, with some of the various FC Dallas discount options, I've gotten uh, authentic kits the season they've come out for as little as $25. See, that's sweet. The only time I get a jersey for $25 is DH gate, and there's the off chance that that one's not fitting too well. Yeah, I I have gotten... I think I've only ever paid full price once on a Dallas jersey, and every single other time it's been at least 30 to 40% off. It's They actually do treat us well down here. And i got to get on the uh, FC Dallas season ticket plan. <laughs> of course, yes. I'm, I'm pretty awesome. certain uh, um, we, you, you'd even get a check for every time we sell a player. Ugh, well, that wouldn't be bad. I don't think NYCFC's sold anybody since Jack Harrison, basically. So Yeah. Well, Joe Scally, I guess, counts, but he hasn't left yet, so we can push him off. Um, Let's not spend the entire night talking about MLS (laughs) because we did that last time. (laughs) Spent a solid two hours doing that last time. So, yeah, let's get into this Open Cup stuff. Um, It's funny, when we were writing up this list, you you put the four key changes that are coming this year, and I gave you my my one-sentence answer about how I felt about those changes. So let's, let's start at the top with the first change. So the first change is there's a pretty substantial new schedule arrangement for the uh, 2020 Open Cup this time in terms of when rounds are being played and how much time is in between each round. Yeah, so obviously the biggest part of that change is the super, super early start, which we're going to get to in in a minute because that's point like three and four, essentially. So the, the new schedule, okay, I understand it. I get it. It's better for the tournament overall. It also uh, gets us more big versus small team pairings earlier on. Yeah, yeah. There's This is actually the, the biggest part of the changes that I am okay with. Uh, I think there's, there's more benefits than things that it hurts until we get to the part where we'll, we'll talk a little bit earlier about what that early start means for the smaller clubs. Yeah, and uh, it's it's something that it feels like it was rushed through at the last minute without really consulting everybody involved and uh, also feels like it was something that they were going to try and roll out slower and then just decided to jump for it this year. Yeah, I'm curious as to what the discussions were like ahead of that change, because I know that there's been discussion around it for some years now, and there was just never quite the momentum or maybe the organization from U.S. soccer, uh, which is which I think is more likely um, to get the change done. And it just seems like it came together this year, but it seems like maybe they should have thought about it this year and then said, hey, this is a change coming down the road in maybe a year or two you know, take the time to adjust as necessary so this doesn't affect you adversely. And instead, they just said, yeah, doing it 2020, railroading it through, you guys figure it out. Yeah. And even if they had gone like, this year, they're gonna they're gonna like put out a dummy schedule of when they want to put the first round for next year. So that way, every single team who's going to be, you know, entering or trying to qualify can know a year in advance. Oh, we're going to have to play a game in March. That would have been... If they had done that last year, I doubt there would be any problem right now. Right. And and the big issue revolving around this early start, of course, is the NCAA's archaic player release rules, uh, which doesn't really require any NCAA school to let go of their players until, what is it, May 1st? Uh, typically, it's May 1st. A handful of schools in outside of Division One. Mainly your D2 and D3 schools can get around that a little bit, 
But if you're a D1 player, not a chance. Yeah. And so the big issue with that, of course, is that right now, in the age group that most NPSL and USL League 2 teams fields players, the best players are still, as archaic as the system is, playing NCAA soccer, many of them at the D1 level. So this is more of an issue in USL League 2, certainly, I think, where the whole league is fully amateur. There's no semi-pro teams at all, and there's no teams that really rely on anything but college players. But you have these teams that usually get their rosters together for an early May start, get their guys into camp just before the season gets underway. And now they're sitting here either scrambling for players two months before their usual availability, or in the case of uh, Reading United, who is a two-time consecutive finalist in USL League Two, and the Flint City Bucks, who won the league last season, uh, they were unable to get their players. They were unable to get a roster together that would be able to compete at the level they were happy with. And they ended up having to withdraw from the tournament entirely. Yeah, it, certain teams have definitely been affected substantially more than others. I think it's the areas that haven't had a really long history outside of that one particular club of lower level semi-pro soccer being like a big thing. So like the Dallas area, a lot of the teams that have been affected, Denton Diablos, Fort Worth Vaqueros, NTX Rayados, they're all for the most part going to be fine because we can have enough guys who want to play soccer and are good enough to play at that level that aren't in college. But for, yeah, Flint, there's not much else out there. Or Reading, there's not much else out there. Like, if, if, if you're a team that has been able to field an entirely or 90% collegiate roster forever, this is a pretty tough adjustment to make. It is, and I, I spoke with the teams from Reading and Flint in the in the aftermath of this schedule change, and um, their decisions to withdraw from the tournament. And there was a great deal of frustration in both organizations. They weren't ready for this change. It caught them completely off guard. And uh, yeah, for for a lot of the players that that play for these teams each year, the Open Cup run is the biggest part of their season. Right, it's the only chance they get to play. Uh, on a stage where they have a potential to play against professional clubs at from higher levels. And so for them to be unable to do that because of this change, you know, it's a really adverse situation for them. Yeah, it's it's and and that, that what really sucks is that you've got a lot of kids who, you know, college age players who have been drafted or signed as homegrowns or what have you, who point to playing in the Open Cup for those sorts of teams as really useful growth experiences in their developmental career that actually help prepare them for professional soccer. And it feels like without getting the NCAA to finally lighten up, we're going to be losing a, a long-standing developmental tradition. Yeah. And it, 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 it there have been a number of players that have come through. Um, I keep referring to League Two simply because they, they're very reliant on college players, but there are some NPSL clubs who were who are also reliant on college players, as you mentioned, who were affected by this. Um, and and the teams that rely on college players are, of course, some of the some of the best finishers each year in both of these leagues because just the, the quality of player is so high. Um, yeah, so I wonder why you might be uh, more familiar with USL League Two than the average soccer person. I wonder what mm -hmm. might have happened to make that a possibility. 
Hmm. I, I hmm. wonder indeed. I'm, I, I would like to clarify for the record that none of my statements are on the payroll of any organization currently. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's no active shilling going on right now. Um, so, so hold up, but hold on because there's a second complicating factor to all of this. Um, league, league agnostic, which is that the NCAA has a proposal right now to change their season format led by Sasha Sarovsky from, from Maryland soccer, um, to split, to split into a spring fall format. And that would have even greater ramifications for this entire thing. Cause then all of a sudden you're talking about these colleges being active in the spring as well, which, which most of them are and aside from a few is which are what are essentially exhibition games. Yeah, that's definitely going to make things even more complicated. And I think we're going to start to see even more criticisms being made of the NCAA's amateur eligibility rules, should that come to pass. Because all of a sudden, for the players who might be, you know, really close to going pro, but still finishing up a season... Even if the, the spring season ends early enough that they can like still play some summer soccer with, say, the NPSL or the League Two, that it, it college, college soccer is just such a complicating factor, and there's no real easy way to fit where the rest of the pyramid wants to go without seriously dismantling a lot of traditional college soccer organization. Yeah, the two are definitely at odds with one another, and it's a it's a frequent topic of conversation among people like yourself, yourself and me, who are you know very invested in the amateur game in the open division, if, if you if you will. Um, there's there's it's obviously going to come to a boiling point eventually where the NCAA model and and these these amateur leagues just can't coexist, especially with the NPSL looking more towards extending their season outwards towards a uh, more UPSLS model of spring, summer, fall. Um, and especially if they're long-term looking to launch, you know, if they're, if members cup keeps going, or if they end up launching a pro division, like their so-called five-year plan claimed a few months back. So there's just, there's just a lot of complicating factors around the NCAA. And at some point that organization just needs to get kind of cracked open like an egg and really scrambled up. It's just, it's just non-functional in the, in the pyramid the way it is now. Yep. Honestly, what BYU used to do, having their their varsity team playing in League Two, I actually kind of like that idea of just having, you know, just take the college soccer players, put them in League Two, put them in the NPSL, just put your team in there. And then we've got regular club teams and college teams and just decouple it completely from the NCAA and then you don't have to deal with their arbitrary rules anymore. Yeah, it would be nice. And, and unfortunately I think it's just really the NCAA that doesn't want to relinquish that power. You know, they feel their grip already slipping on college football as it becomes more and more realistically, it's already professionalized, even if they won't admit it. Same and thing so, for basketball too. Yeah. Yeah. The two big money-making sports are, are essentially professional in, in their own way, except for the non-paying of the players. Except and, when they do pay the players and get away with it. <laughs> which is, in the case of college basketball specifically, quite an issue. Yeah, uh, it's it's just a big, big mess. Yeah, and, and so overall, I appreciate 
that U.S. soccer is trying to improve the cup. I think that's long overdue. I think it was it was starting to fade out of relevance and and increasing the number of teams and increasing the number of upper versus lower division matchups is is helpful towards that end. The extended schedule is helpful. The other part that I would like to see them start to address and and you wrote this down as a note and I was fully on board immediately. We talked about this immediately. Is why is there no women's open cup? Yes, I would like to uh, point to a piece written a few years ago by, by you know, it was published on SockTakes.com, and uh, we'll actually try and put a link in, in, the, uh, in the show notes here. This is basically my own soapbox rant of, I want to say this was two years ago? Like, it, I've, been, I've been screaming for this off and on for the better part of the past four years. And I, I've heard both arguments made really, really well. That from, say, the NWSL side, they're thinking that with national team call-ups and with uh, Olympic tournaments... Or, national, or World Cup qualifiers, or all the various different national team events, and adding in NWSL League play with the way the season currently runs, it's actually a pretty congested schedule, and the teams are struggling to have completed rosters. And for the semi-pro amateur teams in UWS or WPSL, the issues are more of having the players around for the exact same reason that the men's open cup right now is having issues that they already really only have their players from like May through the end of July and trying to extend that to fit in another five to six games. That's a lot of travel. That's a lot more uh, that they're having to rely on these players and it all is going to add up. But on the other side, I've heard a lot of WPSL owners saying, we'd love it. We would absolutely kill for a chance to go and take on NWSL teams every single year and maybe even set something up where we play the UEFA Champions League winner after the uh, USA Women's Open Cup. And they, they like the idea of a challenge. It's just a case of how do we make it work and how do we make it viable and sustainable and that's a question I really haven't found an answer for. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some some complications around the topic. But, you know, if, if U.S. soccer is so willing to sort of disrupt the structure of the men's tournament to try to improve it and, and improve the status of the men's game, if they're really dedicated to the growth of the women's game in this country and, uh, you know, backing the NWSL for years, it appears that they are dedicated to that. It's, it's a logical step towards continuing to drive interest in the women's game, right? It would be, it would be a tournament that would make people aware of the fact that there even is women's soccer at below the NWSL. I think, that, I think there's a huge portion of soccer fans who, are, who aren't even aware of that. Um, and I, and I think it's worth probably investing some of your resources into, you know, defraying some of those costs and some of those problems and trying to fix some of those issues to, to make something like this a reality because of the benefits it'll bring long term. Yeah, honestly, if I'm U.S. soccer, I'm trying to get a title sponsorship for the Open Cup to be, hopefully, I think ideally you'd want an airline. 
I think if you could get like the Alaska Airlines Open Cup or the American Airlines Open Cup and have the title sponsor also help subsidize the travel with U.S. soccer kicking in money as well, like you make that you make that champion or that championship money a lot bigger of a number and you make it a lot cheaper and easier to travel all of a sudden you're going to see everybody taking the men's side more seriously and with more and more teams having girls youth organizations whether it's in the ussda or this new usl academy or the wpsl there's that's the sort of thing that could help drive the viability of a women's open cup and also make it profitable while also making it to where players can actually make a little bit more money in the NWSL by playing more games. Yeah, I, I completely agree. A title sponsor would be crucial. Anything to defray the travel costs, which really is, you know, the biggest struggle for a lot of these smaller teams would be, uh, you know, just a, you know, a, a beautiful little slice of cake to, to add on to, um, you know, some of the revenues that these teams bring in, it would defray a lot of those, a lot of the costs. And, and, uh, you're right. It would bring some more notoriety to it. It would allow you to increase the prize money. I think, I think the, the prize money structure needs to be restructured entirely. I think it's got to be something more akin to what the FA cup does with, with exit money at each round and then, and then a prize for the winner. But that's an entirely different story. Um, and I could talk about that all night, but we have other stuff to talk about. So I won't. Yeah, I, I, I do say, though, that even with all of these changes, 100 teams in the Open Cup and all of these new teams making their debut, um, Denton Diablos, my local NPSL team where I'm part of the supporters group and make it to every game, they're in the Open Cup for the first time. It's Even with all the, the drama that's going on, I'm still unbelievably excited and I can't wait for kickoff again. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for sure. At the end of the day, there may be issues with some of these changes, but I agree that overall it's made the tournament stronger. It's made it more exciting and it's it's going to be a great year. It's going to be a great Open Cup. Um, I'm excited to see how some of the more, you know, some of the increased number of lower division versus higher division matches go. I'm hoping for a few more cup sets because, I mean, that's what everybody wants, right? We want we want the darlings. We want the Florida soccer soldiers. We want Christos. Um, you know, and I think we want to see a Cal FC taking out an MLS team again. I want to see the Denton Diablos in the final. Yes. Denton versus <laughs> Fort Worth in the final. It's the only chance it can happen because we share a co-owner. And uh, we're already we're already betting on who's going to win. <laughs> oh, so is, is there a restriction with those two that they can't meet until the final? Yeah, uh, Denton and Fort Worth both have a shared co-owner who also co-owns Napa 1836, the Napa Valley team mm-hmm. that was in the uh, the Members Cup. And because of all of that, uh, yeah, 1839, Napa 1839, uh, uh Actually, one of the former executives for both FC Dallas and the LA Galaxy, who's a local soccer guru in Dallas. So because he's got ownership in both of those two teams, we cannot be scheduled in the same game until the finals. So that's what we're all hoping for. Yeah, that would be that would be probably the most remarkable story in the history of the Open Cup for that to happen. Oh, yeah, we, we would have to actually play it at like an MLS stadium and see if we can't rope in a few people to watch two amateur sides play for a Champions League spot. 
play at FC, play at FC Dallas' stadium. Winner, winner stays up in MLS uh, and drops FC Dallas down to the NPSL. Who says no? <laughs> uh, maybe USL Championship? Because <laughs> I'd have to think about that. Like, I like the idea of it, but I'd rather just have, you know, all three teams in MLS. I think that would be the ideal situation. Yeah, well, uh, probably got to do something about those territory rights then. <laughs> uh, Dallas is big. We're bigger than New York City, and you guys can hold two teams. Now, hopefully we can hold more soon enough, or yeah. we're going to have to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so continuing, let's let's we're on the MPSL now. Let's continue on that theme, um, specifically on your Denton Diablos, because we have talked about briefly how this exodus of some of the best teams from MPSL to NISA has left sort of this power vacuum at the top of MPSL. You don't have Detroit anymore. You don't have the Cosmos. You don't have Miami. You don't have Chattanooga. And so the window's kind of open here about who can be the next power. Yeah, and and in. In the past, when you exclude Chattanooga, Detroit, Miami, and the Cosmos, your big star teams have been Cleveland and San Diego, ASC San Diego, and a handful of others that were pretty routinely in contention, for, especially uh, late in the season, able, able to uh, still hold their own against you know teams that were legitimately being professional like players were being paid and now uh with a team in denton that actually managed to take one of the other recent powers in our conference the fort worth vaqueros our crosstown rivals able to deal with them pretty well like it's it's making things a lot more open and teams that were pretty good last year could end up becoming contenders just all of a sudden simply because of that massive departure at the top yeah i, th I think you know cleveland and san diego as regular powers are, are definitely interesting to watch uh san diego correct me if i'm wrong was was going to be a part of that npsl pro effort that members cup was supposed to become and never came to fruition yeah so they had also talked about possibly being in the founders cup for a little bit Mm -hmm. And they were also one of the teams that was going to try and work something out for the aborted, abandoned 2018 NASL season. They've had some serious pro aspirations and don't seem to really be putting those aside other than figuring out which league makes the most sense. Mm hmm. And, and it's and it's a good organization to ASC San Diego there. That's a that's a pretty powerful club at, at the youth level it's a it's definitely like a fixture of southern california so they have the resources to to do that um as you said it's sort of just a matter of where do they want to go and uh nisa would be the would be the logical thought i would think um given that there's probably some territory rights around san diego with with uh landon donovan san diego loyal um but I think realistically, if they wanted to go USL, they could probably figure out a way to work that out. Yeah, they could probably manage to sit pretty comfortably in League One if they felt so inclined. Mm -hmm. uh, the way the club has spoken in the past makes me think that just the USL model versus the NPSL model, they prefer the way the NPSL tends to do things, and that would lead them more to consider NISA. However, that would also mean competing against 1904. 
which they may or may not want to do. They might look at it as a fun challenge to have a local professional rivalry. Or they might look at that as a very crowded pro soccer market that now has two outdoor teams and an indoor team all playing pro ball year-round. That hmm. it's, it's, it's tricky with those other two teams basically emerging as professional sides in the past real really past six months or so and it npsl having a pro option is perfect for the san diego's and fort worth's and cleveland's and atlantic cities of the league where they definitely have what it takes to compete on a higher level and maybe even year round but don't really have the money for the pls system Mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways an npsl professional league could be a pretty substantial reform effort especially if they manage to link up some sort of deal with nisa where you could get you know apply for membership in npsl pro and have a chance to get promoted to nisa that that could be a pretty easy conversation to have yeah, and I think I think the NPSL NISA link makes a lot of sense in the same way that the NPSL and NASL link made a lot of sense back in the day, even though that never really came to quite quite fruition. Um, I have a little more faith in in Prutch and Company over at NISA to make that a reality if that was the direction that the NBSL chose to go. Um, I could see San Diego taking advantage of that. I could see Cleveland taking advantage of that. Um, FC Motown out, uh, closer to me out in Jersey. Um, I could also see them, uh, doing something along those lines. I note that they've sort of been semi-pro in the past. They've had some pretty prominent names on their rosters. Um, I know RJ Allen, former NYCFC player was there for a little while. Um, so there's definitely a number of clubs that would benefit from an option like that. And, uh, it's really just down to can the NPSL leadership which currently seems to be in the hands of the New Orleans Jester owner, can can they put that all together? Because it feels very, it feels in a way much less structured than it's ever felt. Yeah, and, and, and I'm curious as to whether they can pull that together. It, it's NPSL, I think, is in in pretty substantial need of a front office reorganization. I also think that maybe it's time to possibly consider not the full two-tier approach, but to sort of start thinking of how do we want to evaluate teams for new membership? How do we want to evaluate what standards we want to enforce? Just to sort of, sort of you know, offer a, a more regulated, not necessarily strict, and you have to meet these requirements, but simply saying that Compared to League Two, which is just high-end college soccer, NPSL could position itself as like the top tier of amateur soccer and the pathway for teams to move to the professional side. And that that is a, a message they had taken before. I think the the timing for them has actually been pretty bad because when they were really open to the idea. The NASL was, they couldn't keep their story straight for more than 90 minutes. Whereas now that you've got NISA, and NISA has been remarkably consistent despite the rapidly changing front office, NPSL's kind of kicking the dirt again. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, it doesn't help when you, when you, uh, make the jester's owner, your chairman, and he essentially comes out the first press conference and says, I don't even really want the position. They just asked me to take it, which is not really what you want to hear from the guy you just put in charge of your league. Um, but I think there's there's something to be said there for the NPSL with an opportunity to become sort of the focal point of adult amateur soccer, right? Because you're right, USL League 2 sort of has that college thing locked down. I mean, you can see it in the super draft numbers every year. A lot of those kids play USL League 2. And they but, even hype it up with the hashtag path to pro and all oh, the other yeah. stuff. Like, they... they they know what they're good at, and they they've they've basically said we're we're set here. This is this is a spot where we want to lock it down. Yeah, and I think they've been pretty successful at building their model to do that. Um, I'm not sure how long that model will last for in its current state because I think the landscape is just shifting so dramatically, uh, especially if this NCAA split season proposal goes through. It's it becomes a lot more tenuous. Um, it's a that's a separate issue for down the line. But you're right in that it leaves a niche for the MPSL to fill with, with all of these amateur players that are in college, right? There's so many, there's so many out there and it's just a matter of, of can you fill the demand? Um, and can you be organized enough to fill the demand? Um, I think they really need to figure out a more permanent sort of leadership structure. Um, you know, the jesters are too tenuous. They've had, they've had, you know, flirtatious conversation with USL about potentially returning to that league, um, on and off for years now. Uh, there's been reports of that. So you need somebody who's not doing that running your league, really. They've also had to take the 2019 season off kind of at the last minute because of financial issues. Mm -hmm. And even being a, a long lasting organization, they've had some struggles on and off the field, not inconsistently to where yeah, it does give me some pause as to whether or not that was the right choice. But also, I find it very interesting that we didn't see a lot of other people step up and sort of demand it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of interesting. You, you mentioned sort of a minute ago that sort of layering NPSL into this two-tier structure would allow them to have sort of a, a path to pro for teams, if you will, right? Yeah. And that that could be a really appealing quality of the league. But right now, as it stands, you see more of that from USL League 2 to USL League 1. You've seen Tormenta go up. You've seen Tucson go up. Um, the Lakeland Tropics are sitting out this League 2 season with a rumor that they're going to be looking to move up to League 1. They're um, moving up. They're, they're in those conversations. Shh. <laughs> so, you know, you have a bunch of these teams who are looking to make that leap on the USL side. So it's almost, I mean, and then of course with Chattanooga and Detroit leaving, you had those two conferences almost, almost completely collapse the Southeast conference and, and, uh, Detroit's conference. Um, so you have, and, and part of that was Asheville city in, uh, in the NPSL Southeast moving over to the USL league two's deep South division. Um, and there's definitely some some pro aspiration there as well, though I think there's other things that are focused, uh, an immediate focus. But I think long term that that would be that would be a good market for League One. So you have to at some point figure out a way to either establish that two tier structure for the NPSL and get that started, or you risk losing that race before you even begin it. Yeah, and the lack of any sort of announcements on this big 2020 season. And the league, very interestingly, before just, you know, two months ago on their website, they had a big thing about how 
they were talking up this massive 2020 season setup. That's gone for the most part. You're not seeing a whole lot of the uh, long full season stretch that you were seeing before. And as is kind of usual, a lot of the uh, Californian teams will play earlier in the year because they've got the players and they've got so much soccer in the state that it's pretty easy. So their seasons, they're, they're longer, they start earlier. But another thing that I've, uh, I've, I've learned about the NPSL is that a lot of the conferences can kind of do their own thing. And that's why you see dramatic differences if you look at the overall end-of-the-year standings in terms of the number of games each team plays. That, that's because they've given a lot of freedom to the individual conferences and divisions to where just in the same region you have the Southwest Conference in California and Arizona and that area. They play 18 games, whereas most of the others are playing 10 and the uh, Mid-Atlantic Conference only played 8. You have a 10-game difference between two teams comparing Baltimore to L.A. in the same league. Right, and that was, that was an issue last year in terms of Open Cup qualification it as was. well. And that was one thing that U.S. Soccer did actually say. They don't usually mention too much about what they expect out of the amateur leagues. And that was one thing in particular where they said, you really got to, if you're not hitting 10 games in your season, you're, you don't count. Yeah, which, which to me is a bit of an arbitrary number if you're going to pick anything. But I understand sort of they want to see a team that has a presence at, over a, at least a slightly longer span. I, I get it. Yeah. But it's definitely a, you know, a complicated factor. And I think, as you mentioned, the, the decentralized structure, the way that it's sort of run by the parts rather than the whole, um, does lead to a lot of those issues. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a point where USL has set up its model in League Two to be sort of a direct counter to that and be very league-centric and have direction coming down from on high. And, you know, the conferences still get together and do all their own scheduling and they, they figure that out. But there's more standards, right? You have to play your 14 games. You have to do X, you know, XX and X in terms of providing hotel arrangements and, and, and stuff. Like there's a bit more setup and that's seemingly been more successful so far. Yeah, and oddly enough, uh, just looking at it, the former NPSL commissioner who was back in 2013 spearheading that whole promotion relegation talks with NASL, that's Michael Hitchcock, the owner of Denton and Fort Worth and Napa, who is the reason why we can't play each other until the final. It all comes full circle. All comes full circle. It's such a, you know, if the more you dig it to, into like the open division, I'll call it, the more you find like stories like that and just a lot of overlap. It's really a small world once you get once you get down here, despite the, sh the sheer number of teams. Yeah, there, there might be, you know, 500 total teams, but it's like all 500 teams. Everybody involved knows each other and we're basically all on r slash MLS and Twitter all the day. Pretty much. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny, like the people who are really the driving forces behind it, you know, there's maybe a few dozen people who really care, you know, so much about lower division soccer that they're willing to spend most of their energy and focus on it. And you see them pop up over and over and over in all of these efforts. Um, so, you know, overall, there's a lot of instability going on in MPSL right now. And that may be to, you know, Denton's benefit 
come the playoffs. But overall, it's left the league with a lot of expansion teams coming in, including the whole new Gulf Coast Conference uh, spearheaded by the Jesters. Um, But it also led to a bunch of departures such that the league is, I think, flat year over year, basically, in terms Uh, of arrivals and departures. I want to say that it's gained two teams over last year. I can double check that very quickly. Yeah, we're up to 93 teams. Last year was 91. 22 new teams have joined. 20 teams have left. And that 20 is a hard number to swallow. That's the second biggest departure in NPSL history following uh, 21 teams leaving in between 2014 and the start of the 2015 season. And that's UPSL-type churn. And that is definitely the opposite of what you want to see when you're looking for this sort of long-term stability and professional push. Yeah, anytime you're seeing more than 20% of your team membership turnover, you're, you're, there's something going on where teams aren't wanting to stick around. And I think it's even more hurtful when you see League 2, which is always typically trailed behind in the number of teams. Uh, it had 72 last year. It has 82 this year. It gained a net gain of 10 and a, and of those 16 additions that came in there are one two three four five of them came over from the mpsl some are fielding teams in both philadelphia lone star and westchester united but asc ann arbor grand rapids fc and Asheville city all just came straight over yeah and then you also have stuff like even looking at the seven teams they lost One of them was part of the Fresno organization that's sort of up in the air. One of them is the switchback second team that's also up in the air. Albuquerque Soul, which is essentially sort of becoming the New Mexico United U23, more or less. And the Lakeland Tropics, who are sitting out a year, a U23 team for Orange County SC. And the only two teams that have like left with no intention of continuing for now, are uh, the San Diego Zest and the Victoria Highlanders. And the Zest have left pretty much just because they're focusing more on youth now. And the Highlanders are actually potentially looking at putting together a bid for an additional uh, uh, Canadian Premier League team out in the uh, Victoria, British Columbia area, sort of as a a nearby rival to... uh, uh pacific pacific, right? pacific yeah. fc yeah it's they they'll actually be playing relatively close to each other or possibly hopping across the bay or the channel to play on the mainland and there's the when you look at it there's not been a lot of big and mass departures from league two in quite a few years And that's definitely something, at the very least, mass folding versus becoming professional. You usually see two or three teams in League Two for the past few seasons becoming professional at the end of the year. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's part of the the success, which should theoretically really be driving NPSL to sort of get it together and provide a similar pathway on on their end, because you're going to start losing teams like, like in Asheville, with pro aspirations eventually who thinks, Hey, I see these teams going from USL two and becoming pro, you know, what am I doing here? Um, 
so as you as you sort of mentioned, there were really only two significant departures this year. Um, the Highlanders, who are going to take part in a lower division Canadian league this season, as they you know prepare for the move that you just described, and the Zest, which were uh, from what I understand a pretty shocked departure actually. Um, they were present at the winter summit for USL at, at the scheduling meetings and then simply didn't participate. Um, so suddenly was their departure. Uh, and so, I've heard that it's, um, partially due to, uh, changes with how the galaxy is funding youth teams because they had been propped up a bit by the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And with that changing and reconsolidating a little bit that it's, it's going to be, it's going to be different for them and they're still kind of figuring out what their future is going to look like now, whether it's going to be more of a youth focus or more of a uh, academy only system or however else they end up doing it. And it is an odd one to lose, but it's not the first time we've seen a team lose its MLS, you know, affiliation and suddenly implode. Yeah, um, it's definitely not the first time we've seen that. Um, and it created a bit of a situation for the rest of the Southwest Division teams um, in what was already sort of a shrinking division with Orange County's U23 team folding, the Fresno FC U23 team folding. Um, so you'll notice right now, if you were to go to the USL League 2 website and look at the schedule for some of the clubs in the Southwest Division, there's just simply a couple of games on every schedule that are TBA. And so my understanding is that the league is talking to uh, Patty Adores down there, who previously fielded a team, OC, OC Orange County Blues, um, in USL League Two. And so there's talks about, apparently around them returning to fill that vacant spot left by the Zest. Um, otherwise, you're going to have a somewhat unbalanced schedule. And uh, I think everybody's sort of keen to avoid that down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was definitely sort of the high drama of the USL League Two offseason. But overall, there's been sort of this remarkable level of stability the past few years in a in a landscape that is typically very unstable. Um, and and it's definitely taken a bit of advantage of sort of the NPSL's vacuum at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be curious to see, especially with the Open Cup implications of how many teams from each league get bids based on the number of qualified U.S. teams as that gap in number of teams closes, you know, that has some implications if you're going to have a really, really off year in expansion like the NPSL did while your primary, you know, competition has a very significant year. I think plus 10 is one of the biggest gains USLE 2 ever had in a single season. Mm-hmm. And then that also factors in with the, the final big discussion point we've had, which is these are not the only two recognized open division leagues now open Hmm. division national leagues that the upsl is getting a lot of that uh decision or or a lot of that uh uh, sanctioning and that changes everything in a massive 300 plus team way yeah that's that's very significant because if you're going to treat it the same proportional way uh yeah you're gonna you're gonna see a, a lot of upsl teams suddenly in the open cup and unless you're going to expand the open division to accommodate that that change, it means somebody's losing teams, whether it's the, the open qualifiers or whether it's one of the other two national leagues. Uh, I think I think UPSL has started the the probationary period for that status. Right. It's a three year period. 
Yeah, it, it's going to be, it, it's not going to happen for 2020. We're probably going to start seeing a light selection for 2021. My guess is probably eight, maybe the top eight from the national playoffs. And then after that, 2022, it's anybody's guess. And we could also see if we have another explosion in uh, USL or NISA teams. And all of a sudden, the professional pyramids, 10, 15, maybe even 20 teams bigger. Then we're going to have to even think about how many teams do we want to have in the Open Cup? Is there going to need to be some sort of ceiling or pre-qualifiers for professional sides or something else? Or are we just going to have like a 128-team tournament? All of that is, well, it's really yet to be addressed by anybody involved. But it's definitely something to pay attention to for the next year and change. Yeah. And I mean, the thing with, uh, you know, you, you have room to sort of grow it still because 128 team tournament is actually a pretty nice round number and you can structure that in a variety of ways to make it work. Um, however, us soccer wanted, but you're right. Cause we're, cause we're almost guaranteed to see a continued explosion of professional teams. MLS is going to 30 teams. It's probably going beyond that. Um, the USL championship will probably add a few more independents as some of these, uh, MLS reserve teams get bumped down to league one and then league one you know we had reports from the winter summit for usl of i think it was 19 groups in some stage of discussion uh to field an expansion team either and most of those were bound for league one so you're gonna see some level of explosion in the professional teams and since you're gonna see an explosion in the open division teams from the upsl you know the tournament three years from now might be unrecognizable from what it is this year yeah and there's also a, a massive lingering question with the standards in place at the NPSL. I've heard a lot of things from a lot of teams that take a lot of criticism with how the NPSL does things. And I think this is pretty well. I just dropped a photo into our little document, if you can see that, Colton, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the standings. Uh, this one team in particular, Bell County FC, I'd like you to take a look at that final standings and tell me if you see anything unusual. Oh, hold on, i got to zoom in so I can see it well enough. Oh. Eee. Ooh. That can't be right. That's correct. Oh, my God. Yep. You want to read that for the audience? Yeah. So uh, in my little... I, I'm a little pixelated, but as far as I can see... They are completely winless with is that one goal for and 128 goals against. Yes, it is. Ha! Huh. With a negative 127 goal differential. I don't think I've ever seen those numbers in any league in the world that I've watched. Yeah, that's a 10 game season, 128 goals allowed. And that's even factoring in their final three games had to be forfeited which meant they only took a 3 nothing loss, which actually is tied for their best result of the season. So technically, over the course of seven games, they gave up 119 other goals. Yes. What is... Okay, so you, you're going to have to enlighten me here on this, because what is the deal with that? So in the past, in this conference in the UPSL, there was a different team. Uh, the Knights FC, based in Killeen, Texas, which was run by two individuals. And near the end of in, uh, the uh, 
2018 fall, like winter 2018 into spring of 2019. The head coach and slash co-founder, co-owner, co-runner had to be uh, hospitalized with some rather serious medical issues, which left the other guy in charge. And rather than continuing to run the team, he basically took bits and pieces of it and splintered off to form Bow County FC. And he's trying to, you know, coach his way through with an incomplete roster and with very little respect in the surrounding soccer community. And has ended up where he's given up an average of 17 goals a game, including uh, tw- two 20 to nothing losses. Oof. Like, it's it's uh, been a bit of drama in UPSL in Texas on the way the Knights were treated by the league and the way the, the former Knights coach had been treated by the league and by the conference. And it's one of a dozen or so teams that have essentially quit the league permanently simply out of protest over how it's run. Mm. And this in particular, and Chris, the the president, club director, and coach of Bell County FC, uh, doesn't really like to admit that he doesn't know what he's doing. And that's how he's ended up where... There's one game in here listed as a 0-0 draw on their schedule that was eventually rescheduled and forfeit. So they only played seven games. And their best result was an 11-0 loss when they actually played. And this is in the top division of the UPSL. And this team has not been relegated for the upcoming spring season. Why have they not been relegated? Uh, because the UPSL is kind of playing around with how they are doing their promotion and relegation as they realign their conferences. Hmm. If I were there, if I were making the decision, I would drop them to the bottom of this new third division they're starting in Texas. And they can work their way up from there. They were formed. And in the past, it was said that if you wanted to join outside of the top five or so teams in the area, five to eight teams, you had to join the next league down that had a spot. That has been essentially abandoned if you pay your fees early and like pay some other stuff. So it's basically pay for promotion. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, the UPSL being given the same status as League Two and the NPSL is, in my mind, not really the right move. Yeah, because I mean, I you know, you hear about the top end UPSL teams who are on field, at least, are competitive with NPSL and USL League Two quality teams. So there's there's clearly, you know, a, a pretty broad level of talent, depending on which team you're looking at in the league. Of course. And and so it's it is curious. I wonder sort of how what, why the decision was made now to grant UPSL national league status and just as before we get into that because i want to talk about that who gave up the goal to bell county fc i'm fairly certain it was an own goal uh that is one of the few games that wasn't actually streamed if i had a video clip of that it would be probably one of my favorite soccer gifts ever (laughs) um 
Uh, I... Oh, here it is. It was in their game against Alamo City SC. Yeah. I can't see what happened, but that's that's where the, the goal came from. And Alamo City is another one of those teams that is potentially on the way out, as was another handful of teams from uh, South Texas that are, are basically just cutting their losses with the league and moving on. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's... The league promises a lot and then never really delivers, and that's a problem. Yeah, I mean that's that's unfortunate to hear. I especially a situation like that where it's so visible and so and so such a clear indicator of sort of the lack of sort of oversight. Um, but I mean, you got to think that you you got to think that somebody in charge is seeing that, and 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 it'll hopefully influence you know, the decision-making process later on. Yeah. And it's it's been a lot more of a focus. Uh, this is when people say, oh, if you overexpand, you're going to oversaturate uh, a market and strain the talent pool. This is what that means. And this is that when you just blatantly just fire off as many teams as will pay your fee, this is what happens. And it's... It's a problem, and it's one that somebody's going to need to address. Otherwise, I don't really see any native mechanism that would keep them from stopping, especially if expansion fees are a primary source of revenue for the league. And in a lot of cases, this is showing that the criticisms people make against MLS and USL, those criticisms have merit, but not for the leagues you're addressing them at. Right. There is something to be said for the the way that the predominant revenue of these leagues is paid via expansion fees. But when you have more stringent requirements in place and you're more selective with your process, you can mitigate a lot of that issue. Um, eventually, you're going to have to address the fact that you need to diversify your revenue streams. But when you have no standards at all, this is sort of what you get. And so there's definitely got to be a middle ground where you can be open and you can be, you know, available to teams who want to join, but there has to be some floor that they have to meet. Yeah. And, and while we do wish that any random park league Sunday league team could eventually rise up to MLS, you do have to say, you know, you have to be this tall to ride the roller coaster. Like, if, if you're not implementing even bare minimums or enforcing your bare minimums, then you just get this crazy wild west where 50 new teams form every season and 50 more teams fold every season. And it's... That benefits nobody. Yeah. You, you, you might find your local team and you become a big fan and three years later they're gone. Like, it's... That's the opposite of what any of us want you know and i know that there's you know there's there's a lot of lower division soccer you know people who like to decry the pls overall and 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 i'm on the fence about how i feel about them i think they're definitely overly restrictive and could use a rewrite but even in even in countries like england with their long soccer history and their you know their dozen tiers of league structure there are still standards at each tier. They're different than the standards here, but there are standards about facilities and and sort of your setup that you need to meet in order to continue to move up. Uh, and there and so there's there's no reason not to have some level of standard. Yeah, and and while it does make sense to 
rethink the PLS, especially now that we've got USL League One and NISA both getting off the ground and giving both of those leagues a chance to weigh in on what they view D3 and even D2 standards should look like. Uh, Simply abolishing what we have now isn't actually going to do anything but make leagues even more reliant on expansion fees because that's probably going to be the only way they can continue to make money if teams aren't able to prove their viability. Right. There's... There is something to be said for what the PLS does in terms of making sure the teams can stay alive. Yes. And on that point, circling back, when we're seeing those standards overlooked, as we've seen to different extents with uh, MLS teams like Nashville and uh, League One's Lansing, where you're not really giving them the same sort of degree of vetting that you'd give, say, Sacramento or Louisville or, hell, even some of the NISA teams, that can end up being a problem already where we've seen where they ease up on the PLS and then things start to fall apart. Right. You'd have to find some way to revamp them so that the... the, the standard to get in is still as high as it is, but they're looking at different standards, right? You don't want to necessarily restrict somebody based on net worth and ownership of a certain percentage of the team, but you do want to make sure that they're financially viable. So it's it's a balancing act of not being too restrictive, but at the same time, not not just making it so that there's no necessity to prove financial viability. Yeah. And that that's, that's, Part of what I think might be a good idea to help or a good starting point to help drive further discussion on the PLS. And it's one of many, 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 many problems with U.S. soccer at the moment, whether it's how they're running the Open Cup or how they're running the NWSL or how they're running the search for a CEO or the internal leadership structure or the hiring process for national team coaches or the lack of hiring for na- a youth national team coaches. Yeah, that's of, it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. U.S. soccer is a bit of a colossal shit show. And yeah. we can't really expect the PLS to be a top priority for the time being. Because there's just so much, so many other fires that need to be put out. I think at least you got today, there was a Sports Illustrated report that at least said that Jay Burhalter wasn't in the pool of candidates for the CEO job. So at least you're, that's a step in the right direction. But, you know, it's, it's sort of a treating of a symptom rather than of the cause. And, and I know I've talked to people who are very sort of anti USSF and, and, and don't like the way that they run the pyramid. Um, and take issue with MLS and USL and their structures. But I think most of them are cognizant enough to really recognize that the problem lies with the, at the root, right? It's the federation overall that's, that drives a lot of the issues you see in MLS and USL. Because they're playing essentially within the rules. It's really just the rules that are flawed. Yes, and that's, that's part, of the, the, part of the fuel that gives a lot of the strong pro-reform USSF minds and voices that gives them plenty of evidence they need to point to to be like, if if we don't clean house, all of these problems are going to continue to get worse. And we're probably going to have even more problems in the future. But yeah, the seeing whatever his name was, Doug, whatever his name, Flynn. Mm-hmm. Doug Flynn. 
Doug Flynn. Doug Quinn was a former Dallas president. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, Doug Flynn has a lot of viscerally negative press about him on stuff like Glassdoor and other stuff. And yeah, it's uh, it, it shows that the problem goes as deep as we thought, if not deeper. And I guess we just got to continue making noise until they listen. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I mean, we could spend an entire episode talking about PLS and reform and and if we could both redo the pyramid, how we would do it. And maybe we will at some point, because I think that would be a really interesting episode. Oh, yes. Uh, if we were able to solve all those issues on a, on a one hour pod, then you should just make us president and VP right now. Oh, uh, well, we'll campaign for that. We'll have speeches and we'll maybe even put it up to a fan vote. We'll stage a uh, an old style coup. I like it. I like the sounds of that. <laughs> So that about wraps things up for this installment of the Sock Takes Pod. As always, the Sock Takes Pod is a proud partner of the Beautiful Game Network and is brought to you by our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier to MLS, USL, and US Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. And if you're tired of the same old uniforms and cookie-cutter templates from Nike and Adidas or you're looking for a unique, completely custom kit for your youth club, Sunday league squad, adult, even pro team, Icarus FC can help you create the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. Let them help you design your new custom kit today at IcarusFC.com. That's all from us here at Sock Takes. We'll see you next time.